I'm Joshua Kagey from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 39 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. In our annual Martin Luther King Jr. Day episode, several members of the American Baptist Home Mission Society staff reflect upon quotations by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We hear first from Dr. Jeffrey Hagre. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, and I quote him, whoever passively accepts evil is as much involved with it as he who helps to perpetrate it. Whoever accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. End of quote. Those words of Dr. King are apropos in this historic moment because the forces of human evil are presently threatening our beloved democracy and our quality of life in America. We live in a time when a sitting president declared to an angry mob that if they did not fight to preserve his presidency, that we won't have a country. We witnessed thousands of angry people move on our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. on January 6th with the stated mission of stopping the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate from performing their constitutionally required duty to certify the next president of the United States. We now face an aftermath where elected leaders who themselves were victims of the assault on our capital, victims of the attempted overthrow of our democracy, now seem to lack the honesty and the courage to oppose the evil that would not only rob us of our democracy, but also take innocent lives. Elected officials that are authorized to impeach and to remove Donald Trump from office for violating his oath, who say let him finish his term in peace despite his evil assault in our government, and those who prefer to look the other way, whether due to fear of taking a stand or due to their personal political ambitions, are as much a part of the evil as the person who is leading their movement. There comes a time when we must take a firm stand against evil without fear of retaliation, without fear of how we might be branded if we side with what is right. I believe that is what Dr. King was talking about. Failing to take side with justice, with truth and righteousness is not a political act. It is a moral failure. Whoever passively goes along with evil also becomes a culprit, bears part of the responsibility, and is no less guilty of wrongdoing than the evildoers who started it all. My name is Jeffrey Hagray. Thank you very much. 
I'm Marilyn Turner Triplett, and I lead the ministries to heal and transform communities on behalf of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. You know, it's been said that Adolf Hitler said that if you tell a big enough lie and tell it frequently enough, it will be believed. I've seen a lot of evidence of that over the past four years. I've been astounded by uh, the propaganda that has been released and that people have consumed with such zeal. Um, I literally have seen uh, with my own eyes the words of Isaiah come to life. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, uh, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter and I confess that it, there have been times when I've lost hope uh, because of this. Certainly, the events of January 6th tugged at my spirit in ways that I just don't have words to say. But one thing that has given me hope is a quote by Martin Luther King, a lie cannot live. And so no matter what the evidence that I may see with my eyes or experience with my being tell me, I know that because we are people of God, because God is truth, because I and others like me are willing to stand for and proclaim justice and to speak truth to power, the lies that have been told in our nation simply cannot live. The life that they've taken on will be stunted so thank you, Dr. Martin Luther King. A lie cannot live. And no matter what others may say about saying it enough and saying it frequently enough, it can be cut to its roots. And so I'm clinging this day and in the days that come ahead to the truth of that very short and simple quote by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. A lie truly cannot live if we, who are the people of God, will stand and speak and act in the ways that Jesus acted and spoke and lived when he walked this earth. If we really will become lights to a world that has grown quite accustomed to stumbling around in darkness, salts to a world that has totally lost its taste for savor and flavoring, the lies that are being told, the lies that some believe cannot live. Thank you, Dr. King. Today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church. It will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club. Martin Luther King Jr., Letters from a Birmingham Jail. Statistics say that 75% of Americans say that spirituality is very important to them, but sadly, the church is not. The church is becoming more and more what Dr. King prophesied, the church, the people of God, irrelevant to their context and community, having evolved into nothing more than a social club, providing self-serving benefits exclusively for its members, having little, if any, meaning for and impact on the majority of our society outside the church's walls. Let me be clear. We are designed to be God's agents of change in the world. The 
but people write Christians off as disconnected and out of touch. Much of the world, the Western part in particular, sees the church as silent when it comes to some of the greatest societal and spiritual issues of our day. And when they do see the church speaking up, often they are confronted by people who are angry, hateful, fearful, or apathetic, with little integrity, who have sold out their voice or worse, just given it away to somebody else. So what would it look like for the church to recapture our authenticity? How can we find our unique personality, who we were created to be, and demonstrate the divine virtues of justice, mercy, and peace? For those who are fully committed followers of Christ, if we simply hear and respond to the Holy Spirit, we will be led to what Dr. King called a more beautiful and beloved community worldwide. The church is the body of Christ. So it makes sense that when we think about the work of Jesus, we remember he self-sacrificingly gave up his life for the world. The church is the most authentic when we are like Jesus, and we can't claim to be like Jesus if we are not sacrificial. We must remember, and oddly enough, it took a worldwide pandemic to remind us that the church at its core was never an institution, and for sure not a building. That idea came a long way after after Jesus' ministry here on the earth. The church has always been a collection of redeemed, reclaimed people, individuals gathered and then scattered in the name of Jesus into the world for whom he died, set apart to bless it and change it. As Daniel Fusco would say, you know, the more I think about it, maybe this was not only Dr. King's hope for the church. I have a hunch this may have been Jesus' plan for us all along. Oh, by the way, as the years went by along the coastline, newly established life-saving stations experienced the same changes that had occurred in the ones that came before them. They evolved like their predecessors into a club. Yet another life-saving station was then founded. History continued to repeat itself over and over again. And if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive and excluding clubs up and down its shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, and most of the people are lost. I'm Dr. Jeff Johnson, National Coordinator for Faith Initiation and Discipleship for the American Baptist Church's Home Mission Societies. Here are two excerpts from Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jail. The first one reads, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Hmm who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow, 
understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. King goes on to say, towards the end of his letter, it reads, I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with America's destiny. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. This is only one of my favorite quotes from this letter to Birmingham Jail. Throughout it, Dr. King has several important messages that are timely to our context today. And even further throughout the letter, he talks of hope and the church and the need for it to come to the aid of justice. But what I like most about this quote is its nudge into action. The way he unapologetically names the truth, speaking from his lived experience, teaches us how to do the same. It makes me wonder how much more just the world would be if we fully embraced and listened to the voices of folks on the margins to make a more equitable world for everyone. My name is Reverend Brittany Graves. I am the Associate Coordinator for Public Witness and Advocacy at American Baptist Home Mission Societies. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. Dr. King delivered these words near the close of his address in support of striking sanitation workers at Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee on April 3, 1968. One day later, he was assassinated outside the Lorraine Motel. He was 39. Dr. King didn't live a long life, but he lived a consequential life, leading the Montgomery bus boycott and the Birmingham campaign organizing and providing leadership that resulted in passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Through it all, demonstrating the power of nonviolence to affect social change, moving America closer to living up to the promise of its founding. 
In saying longevity has its place, Dr. King was saying, longevity is not our purpose. Our purpose is to do God's will, however long our lives, and in so doing to live a life of consequence in the lives of those around us. When I die, I don't want my epitaph to read, he lived a long life. Rather, I hope it will read, he lived a life of consequence in the life of his children, his church, his neighborhood, and community. I'm Curtis Ramsey Lucas, editor of The Christian Citizen. In a letter from Birmingham Jail, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speaks directly to people who look like me when he says, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. He goes on to say, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. As someone who regards myself as a person of goodwill, I must contend with this challenge. I must look deeply within to my own response to current events, to my own participation in direct action, to ask which is my greater loyalty toward, the presence of justice or a negative peace. I have to ask whether I am aiding in creating the path toward justice, or if I am knowingly and unknowingly putting up obstacles to our getting there together. I don't know when I first read this letter, but I try and make a regular habit of it now so that I open my eyes to the potential ways that I and people like me might not be living out our values in truth and in action. I live in a town in Connecticut where a young Martin Luther King came as a teenager to work in the tobacco fields. We claim him as part of our legacy, and we celebrate that what he witnessed here in the Northeast was part of his inspiration to work for justice. But how are we living that out in the here and now? What would Martin Luther King Jr. see were he to arrive in my community today? These are the questions I ask myself as I read. In the January-February 1947 issue of the Morehouse College newspaper, an 18-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. published an essay titled The Purpose of Education. In it, he posed a twofold function of education, one of utility and one of culture. But he was really questioning whether education was fulfilling its purpose at all. 
He wrote, quote, even the press, the classroom, the platform, and the pulpit in many instances do not give us objective and unbiased truths, unquote. Sound familiar? But King argued that education should save us from what he called a morass of propaganda. He said, quote, education must enable one to sift and weigh evidence, to discern the true from the false, the real from the unreal, and the facts from the fiction. The function of education, therefore, is to teach one to think intensively and to think critically, unquote. King went on to urge, we must remember that intelligence is not enough. Intelligence plus character, that is the goal of true education. The complete education gives one not only power of concentration, but worthy objectives upon which to concentrate. The broad education will, therefore, transmit to one not only the accumulated knowledge of the human race, but also the accumulated experience of social living. Knowledge and experience. Intelligence plus character. The ability to sift and weigh and discern, the capacity to concentrate, and content worthy of concentration. These are values we need in the Christian Church today, throughout the United States and Puerto Rico. They are values that our American Baptist identity teaches us to apply by exercising soul liberty, by acting as the priesthood of believers by interpreting scripture according to our own conscience and in the community of saints. I believe in the power of true education, which is the work of a lifetime. If we can find a way to unite intelligence and character, to integrate insights of heart, mind, and spirit, to honor the ways of knowing experienced by all God's people, then we might actually see justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a rolling stream. Then we might see peace in our communities and healing in our land. I'm Reverend Rebecca Irwin Deal, Director of the new ABHMS Center for Continuous Learning. On March 17, 1966, at Southern Methodist University, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men, brown men, and yellow men, but God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race and the creation of a society where all men will live together as brother, and every man will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. In this quote, Dr. King teaches that the divine purpose for life is not about you or myself. It is not about your people or my people, your community or my community. Even more, it is not about my country or your country. The divine purpose for life is about us as community. The miracle of the incarnation reveals 
that God's will, who sent his son Jesus, it was to save not only the Jewish people, but the whole world. As a Latino, a master living in this country for 27 years, I believe that sometimes we weaken ourselves when we embrace division instead of unity because we pay more attention to our differences than to our commonalities. We have common enemies like racism, discrimination, inequality, inequity, injustice, white supremacy, and one word, evil. Those enemies are not just like personal and internalized racism, they have evolved into systemic and structural evils. We saw that clearly in the year 2020 and the beginning of 2021 through the pandemics manifested in multiple forms, among them COVID-19 and racism. We must unite as people of all color and ethnicities to defeat defeat those common enemies. We must unite as a people of God. Our prayer should be that God blesses the United States of America in the same way that God blesses the rest of the world. I am Salvador Orellana, and I serve as a director of Intercultural Ministries. On April 4th, 1967, exactly one year prior to his assassination, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke these words to clergy and laity concerned gathered at Riverside Church in New York City. Some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony. But we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision, but we must speak. Sadly, it's been 53 years since Dr. King spoke these words, and yet many of our sisters and brothers in the church continue to remain silent in the midst of injustice. We're living in a climate where there's been a rise in harmful conspiracy theories, false and racist narratives continue to thrive, and acts of domestic terrorism are emboldened and empowered, but many in the church continue to choose to be silent and passive, retreat into their complicit Christianity rather than speaking up, demanding accountability, and seeking to engage in courageous conversations for racial healing. If you're in a position of leadership in your church, your denomination, and or your community, and you choose to sit in the privilege of your silence, then shame on you. As a black woman in this country, I can assure you that it is exhausting and detrimental for people of color to bear the burden of speaking up regarding our continued pain and suffering. Quite frankly, it is wounding and it often feels like betrayal. A more popular quote by Dr. King states, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. 
If you consider yourself to be a friend of God, then I invite you to speak up and call out systemic inequalities. As co-laborers of Christ, I urge you to speak up and do the work of eradicating the evil that is white supremacy. I'm Katie Edwards, Coordinator for Volunteer Mobilization and Disaster Response Ministries. The Martin Luther King Jr. quote that resonates most strongly for me at this moment is taken from his 1964 Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech. In it, he says, I refuse to accept despair as the final response to the ambiguities of history. I refuse to accept the idea that man is unable to influence the unfolding events which surround him. I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. What I love about this quote is that it speaks to our God-given capacity to choose how we will respond in any given moment. When I've been hurt or offended and my emotions are raw, I've disciplined myself to pause, take a deep breath and ask myself, what do you most want in this moment? After I connect with what I most want, I choose behaviors that are consistent with that desire. Later in his speech, Dr. King says, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right temporarily defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. I have the audacity to believe that peoples everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their minds, and dignity, equality, and freedom for their spirits. I believe that what self-centered men have torn down, men other-centered can build up. Unarmed truth, the willingness to be vulnerable and open to hear and be influenced by the truths of others. Unconditional love, the ability to be wounded, angered, and potentially killed by you and still see you as my sister or brother who was created in the image of God, just like me. My name is Michelle Birdsall, and I serve as the Deputy Executive Director, CFO, and Treasurer for the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. Today, I choose hope over despair. I choose to be one of those other-centered persons who builds up rather than tears down. What will you choose today? On August 30th, 1959, in Montgomery, Alabama, the late Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King wrote a paper entitled, A Tough Mind and a Tender Heart. 
King writes this particular paper in response to a sermon written by Gerald Hamilton Kenny. And in this particular paper, Dr. King does a comparing and a contrasting of what it means to have a soft mind, a tough mind, a hard heart, and a tender heart. As I read through this particular paper, one of the quotes that resonated with me reads as follows. It is pretty difficult to imagine a single person having simultaneously the characteristics of the serpent and the dove. But this is what Jesus expects. We must combine the toughness of the serpent and the softness of the dove, a tough mind and a tender heart. As I read this particular paper again, I thought how relevant this is for a time such as this. When Dr. King opened up this particular paper, he talks about the fact that many people rarely achieve toughness of mind. Dr. King says that many are content with the softness of mind. Briefly, I want to share with you this notion about what it means to be soft-minded. Dr. King, in this particular paper, he says that soft-minded people fail to see that even facts can be slanted and the truth distorted. He also says that soft-mindedness or soft-minded people fear change. And the most painful thing for soft-minded people is the pain of a new idea. That soft-minded people are secure in the status quo. Wow. He also goes on and he says that a nation that becomes soft-minded is like a nation full of people purchasing a spiritual death through an installment plan. Wow. As a Black woman in America today, I realize that oftentimes I am torn between my head and my heart that oftentimes there is a tension between the two. But I have decided for myself that I cannot afford to live in the space of soft-mindedness, not in times such as these, I can't. Because if I give way to soft-mindedness, then I will be rendered to a space of gullibility, right? I cannot afford 
to stand in the spaces of soft-mindedness or soft-minded people that fear change, soft-minded people who are comfortable in the status quo. No, as a Black woman in America, I cannot afford to be in the space of soft-mindedness in the face of racial disparity injustice of any and all kinds, violence on any level. I cannot. And I also realize that I cannot live in the space of being tenderhearted only because if I walk around as a Black woman in America in the space of tenderheartedness only, it will render me to be too sentimental it will render me empty and aimless. Therefore, I thank Dr. Martin Luther King for this particular thought of being tough-minded with a tender heart in times like these in America because I have chosen to continuously cultivate a mind that is tough and a heart that is tender because with tough-mindedness, I can do justice. With tough-mindedness, I can show mercy. With tough-mindedness, I can walk humbly, resisting evil. And with tender-heartedness, I can speak words of compassion. I can speak words of empathy. With tenderheartedness, I can show what it means to love my neighbor. Yeah. With tough-mindedness as a Black woman in America, I do it all with the love of God and the unmerited favor of God. And the certainly with the grace of Jesus, I am a black woman in America with a tough mind and a tender heart. And I ask you today, who are you? A recent quote that has really struck my heart from Martin Luther King Jr. is, an individual has not started living until they can rise above the narrow confines of their individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. Living in its most authentic expression is selfless. Martin Luther King Jr. clearly reminds us that we are all global citizens. We should not want more at the expense of another person's demise. The challenge for congregations today in this consumeristic society is to make a choice for its longevity or for the other. Sadly, God's church is becoming more irrelevant and less persuasive when it builds walls that only pertains to its survival. Martin Luther King Jr. reminds us that real living and being an influence for change and transformation begins with rejecting indifference, ethnocentricity, theological and denominational orthodoxy. He elevates the posture of reaching out by rising above our own wants, needs, and putting flesh to our faith in service for others. 
He challenges us to move into the neighborhood and become aware of its people, its aspirations, its dreams, and its suffering. Martin Luther King Jr. bids us to engage with no agenda to promote. Our question is not, what is in it for me? Instead, having a broader concern for the other begins with cultivating relationships that joins people in a shared commitment to build a better today and a better tomorrow for truth and justice for all. I am the Reverend Dr. Eddie Cruz, National Coordinator for Congregational Mission and Discipleship for the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. Be blessed. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy and transform our pending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood, wrote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in April of 1963 in his letter from Birmingham jail. He continued, Now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. Like those of so many of our forebears, Dr. King's words, written more than half a century ago, speak to us today with haunting urgency. It was time then to make real the promise of democracy, and it's still tragically overdue. But sadly, our national elegy is no longer pending. Who among us hasn't lamented the gripping reality of the headlines screaming from our radios, our televisions, our newspapers, and echoing across cyberspace about the violence last summer and in the first week of our very new year? A new year in which we sought such desperately needed hope and good news. The fabric of our nation is coming apart at the seams. Those seams strained by many issues a major one being the inequalities of racial injustice, by this quicksand that pulls us down and down to a place far from God, filled with hate and the violence and pain that creates. I love that King uses the imagery of a rock for human dignity. It's foundational, age-old, impervious, unchanging, Go ahead, build a house on it, or maybe even a nation, perhaps? It'll stand. With King's words ringing in our ears, let's do it. With deep intention, let's recognize the human dignity in each of us and start building there. King was right. On this bedrock, this bedrock of human dignity, our nation will stand. I'm Susan Gottschall, Associate Executive Director of Communications at American Baptist Home Mission Societies. At The Christian Citizen, we're passionate about justice, mercy, and faith. We produce award-winning content that is provocative, timely, and relevant. What started 25 years ago as a print publication is now a digital-first publication that maintains a commitment to print. More recently, we've added a weekly newsletter, this podcast, and a growing presence on social media. Now, for the first time, we're adding a member support program, Christian Citizen Ambassadors. Learn more about how you can support our work at christiancitizen.us slash members. 
Thank you to this week's contributors, Dr. Jeffrey Hagray, Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, Dr. Jeff Johnson, Reverend Brittany Graves, Jennifer Sanborn, Reverend Rebecca Irwin Deal, Reverend Salvador Oriana, Reverend Katie Edwards, Michelle Birdsall, Reverend Dr. Patricia Murphy, Reverend Dr. Eddie Cruz, and Susan Gottschall. Our theme music is Believable Too by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizens edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Peyton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMichael, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about the Christian Citizen, visit our website, ChristianCitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thanks for listening.